Leviticus chapter 17. And uh, last week we talked uh, at length about the place of sacrifice, how location, location, location is not just a real estate dictum, but it's also when it comes to sacrifices. And God was very adamant about where it was. And you recall we discussed about uh, that was so important because um, lest there be some kind of rogue sacrifices, but instead right there at the entrance to the tent of meeting um, so that God's people wouldn't be kind of hedging their bets, as it were, offering sacrifices to idols and other false gods, but instead to the true and living God at the place that he appointed. And we just started talking about then um, verse 11, which is the, the key verse. So let's revisit that now. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Everything in this chapter is pointing to this verse. Everything flows to it or flows from it. And the primary and principal purpose of the blood is only and ever for atonement. This life is in the blood, God says, and that was a belief that was held by pagan and animist societies, both ancient and modern. To this day, still uh, more traditional societies will have this kind of belief in the power of blood. But God says then, therefore, you should not be drinking. You should not be eating blood. You don't imbibe that life-giving power, but instead it's shed for the sake of your atonement and spread on the altar. That's where the forgiveness, forgiveness is going to happen, that reconciliation between God and his creatures. Yeah, Court. My wife said I shouldn't mention this. Okay, that's always a good start. We're <laughs> talking about, about the, the certain, the, and you were talking when Adam, when God breathed, God yes. made Adam out of the dust of the earth. Yes, that's right. <coughs> the dust is dry. Mm -hmm. And when he breathed into him, he had the blood. He became a living. He became a living soul. So yeah, he became a God living soul. Right. Because God never breathed into the animals. That's right. So the um, Adam is brought forth in this unique way, where he has that life giving nephesh was the Hebrew word, that life giving soul. That's not the way that the, the animals are brought forth. They lack that that um, God like nature. Right. We are the ones that bear the image of God as His human creatures. And that's why sometimes um, you'll read these things, people will compare the, uh, the DNA of human beings to a, a DNA of an ape. And they'll say, look, they're like 97% similar. Or I don't know the exact percentage, but it'll be a really high percentage. And they'll use that to establish the fact that we're basically the same. And when it's manifestly obvious that there are some pretty significant differences, right? Uh, but most profoundly, from this theological perspective, is we have the image of God upon us. It wouldn't matter if we were 100% the same DNA. What distinguishes you as a human being is not, uh, you know, the, what's that thing called? You know, the DNA. The, yeah, anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Double the double helix. <laughs> what distinguishes you is not the double helix. What distinguishes you is God's image that is implanted and imprinted upon you and renewed in Christ. See, that's what sets us apart as his human creatures. So, yeah, that's a very good point. Thank you. Why didn't you want him to bring that up, Leslie? No, we'll talk oh, about that later. No, I oh, told, she wanted I told you to. Him. No, I actually you ought to bring that up. You are okay. Good, yeah. good. It's like, am I missing something there? No. Um, okay, so this is this is what it's for. And this diagram uh, helps to see how it's all pointing to eleven. So on the one hand, um, the verses following verse eleven lay out the kind of rationale 
for this mandate. Um, and you have the penalty for misplaced ritual slaughter, the penalty for misplaced sacrifices, the penalty for eating blood, and then coming flowing from it, the consequences have verse 12, the prohibition of eating blood, the disposal of blood from game, and then purification from carry-on or roadkill following after that. At the heart of all of that is this command that all, at all, uh, when it comes to blood, it's not to be eaten or consumed because the life is in the blood. And this is very much reaffirmed in the New Testament. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Sandy. I just wanted to point out that red meat, you know, when it's bloody. Oh, yeah. You mentioned this last week. Yeah. Oh. No, no. To, you just talked it. No, you said it to oh. me, but you didn't say it to everybody else. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, that is myoglobin, and it's a pigmented substance that comes from the injury of muscle. It is not the blood. Okay. So well, what Sandy's saying is uh, when you have red meat, uh, what you're seeing in the red is not blood. It's myoglobin. Myoglobin. Um, pigment that's brought forth when the muscle when the is damaged. when the muscles damaged. Yeah. So, don't say we didn't teach you anything here. <laughs> yeah. A step back, atonement. What does that mean? Oh, great. Okay. Maybe you did it last week. Sure. Know. No, that's okay. It's always it always bears repeating. So, um, I think I've, I've shown this before, but atonement is this wonderful old English word, and it's uh, very simple. You usually can't do this with kind of etymology, but it's at plus one, and then mint is the what Old English would add to uh, kind of make an, a noun out of it. So it's at one mint is atonement equals atonement. Okay, so it's at one. It's that reconciliation. It's bringing back together that which had been rent asunder, see. And so this is what sin does. It says, in, uh, God says through the prophet Isaiah that your sins have separated you from God. Okay? And we saw that vividly expressed in chapter 16, right? Where the scapegoat is sent away. This is a, this vivid expression of how this is what sin does. It separates you from God. But now, through this atonement, you have been reunited with God. And now your sins, which separate you, have, they have been sent away. Right? Now you've been separated from your sins. Before you were separated from God, now you're separated from your sins as far as the east is from the west, right? So that's the atonement. Go ahead. Can atonement only be given by God? Okay. Can atonement only be given by God? What do you have in mind, some of the other options? Well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Can I? For another's sins, you mean? Or for just in a relationship? Or a pastor to... Um, so the atonement only comes... From God and through His His redeeming work, okay. um, does God use us as agents of of atonement or ambassadors of reconciliation? Is it work? yeah, well, yeah, but we're not the ones who are doing the atoning, right? right. It's the once for all atonement. Mm -hmm. Good. So go to Hebrews chapter nine, which kind of expounds upon this theme, including what um, George is raising here. All right, and again, pretty much all of Hebrews can be considered almost as a, as a commentary or reflection upon Leviticus and the, the rites and ceremonies of Leviticus in many ways. So picking up verse 15, therefore he, that is Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant or a new testament, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, 
the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's just a biblical axiom. It's just a a truth that is uttered and actuated throughout the scriptures that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But it's not to be devoured. It's not to be consumed to try and have some kind of shortcut shortcut to receiving divine power. But instead, it's to be sacrificed and then... uh, for the atonement sprinkled on the on the altar. Yes, Andy. So was David just sort of shortening, giving a shorter version of this when he said, "Cleanse me with hyssop, and I shall be." Or, yeah, wash me with hyssop, and wash, I shall be clean. Wash me. Yeah. He, it was just sort of a. Right. He's referring to the whole thing, but he just said. Just yeah. That's a yeah. That's a really good question. So let's turn to that real quick. Sandy's asking about Psalm fifty-one, and when um, this is the the wonderful psalm of repentance by David after his adultery with Bathsheba. And he's acutely aware of his sinfulness and the way he has been separated from God as a result of his actions. And so he he says in Psalm 51, starting with verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. That's um, Levitical language, that blotting out. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Um, and I, I think even um, in uh, older translations, you might even have that word blood guilt uh, from, from my blood guiltiness. Okay? Um, so your question was, is he appealing to a kind of sh- shortcut, as it were, to the, the atoning work? Oh, in verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Yeah, so I think it's... a a reference back, in a sense, to Passover, where you'd have the hyssop and it'd be applied to um, the, the thresholds of the homes. Um, and so I think it's, it's evoking those sacrifices. Um, That's the word I was it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's evoking and alluding to that. Um, and I don't think he means for it to be a shortcut. And in fact, look at the last verse, which sometimes uh, will throw people for a loop because it takes this seemingly strange turn. I, Turned away from it too quickly. Um, but the psalm ends with, uh, Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. David's pointing out what matters is not just a, a ritualistic going through the motions. You need a broken heart, a broken spirit, an attitude of faith. And then we offer those sacrifices right. But ultimately it's that, that faith that he's uh, recognizing matters most. Good. Okay. So thus we have that shedding of blood. Uh, I think I quoted this last week from Chad Bird, jumping ahead a little bit, but he uh, paraphrases this in New Testament terms when he says, the life of God is in the blood of Christ, and he has given it to us on the altar of the cross to make atonement for our souls. So now Leviticus 17.11 is fulfilled in Jesus, which also then answers that conundrum 
of how Jesus can then say, take and drink, this is my blood of the New Covenant, the New Testament. So this prohibition ultimately makes room for Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper. Part of the reason, uh, the primary reason, that God was giving this prohibition against drinking blood in the Old Testament, saying, yeah, he, he affirms, yeah, that is, the life is in the blood, but it's in the blood of my son. And so for this season, until he comes, do not drink of any animal blood, do not take that into yourself, but look forward to, anticipate the day when I will send my son, whose blood will be for your full and final and lasting atonement. So that when you take and drink his blood and eat his flesh, then you have that everlasting uh, word of forgiveness given for you. Um, so uh, with this, I mean, through, through that lens, let's look at John 6, because this is where it's just maybe the most um, pointed statement from our Lord, and it has a maybe predictable outcome. In John 6, and it's really the whole chapter, the better part of the chapter, but we'll just look at verse, uh, starting with verse 52 of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 6. It says, The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no what? Life in you. Oh. Exactly, because the life is in the blood. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has not just any life, but eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Notice that emphasis on living, on livelihood. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Okay. And then what happens? Jesus says these things, and everybody's like, that makes sense. Cool, that's easy. No. Right? They're like, oh, wait a second. Verse 60, for 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They're like, yeah, I think uh, we're out now at this point. <laughs> like Leviticus 17, 11, you don't know that part? Okay, we're out of here. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So I think that, yeah, go ahead. It's interesting, though, in John's Gospel, he doesn't have the Last Supper. Mm-hmm. You know, that's right. But I've heard it's often a very, you know, Eucharistic gospel in that sense. But he's sort of talking about the Lord's Supper here, right. but like they're currently not doing it. Right, that's right? correct. Yeah, so um, Chip's saying is John's the only of the, one of the gospels that doesn't have the institution of the Lord's Supper. It doesn't have that, like all the other, we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have that institution of it. John doesn't have it. And people have wondered, well, why doesn't it? He's got a long extended time in the upper room. He could have included it in there. But John likes to do things more, even more theological, if you will, and symbolical, if that's a word, um, in a way where he's bringing out these deep teachings from the perspective of the resurrected Lord. See? And similarly, um, if you want to talk about baptism, 
Well, there's really two places we could talk about baptism. He doesn't have the great commission like Matthew does, go and baptize. But what does John have instead? Well, he has, first of all, Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. Okay? And uh, Jesus says to him, you must be born again. Oh, I'm going to be born again. You know, i got to go back into my mom. No, no, no. Whoever's born of water and the spirit. Okay? And then again in John 13, the washing of the disciples' feet. Unless, you, unless I wash you, you have no part with, with me. So in that respect, it's kind of a, um, a playing off of the teaching of, of baptism, but in this characteris- characteristically kind of symbolic and theological way. Yeah, Bob? John does not record our Lord's baptism either. That's right, and John doesn't record the Lord's baptism either. He doesn't, so the action of baptism, just like the action of the Lord's Supper regarding our Lord, is absent. Yeah. But all that's underneath it is present. But all that's underneath it is present. You could say in, with, and under it. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Lutheran jokes. So uh, that's right. So that's... This, that prohibition then was pointing forward to this institution and command. So that then Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And uh, Greek has this wonderful construction where it can assume a positive answer to the question. Okay? So this isn't just a neutral question. The way Paul literally phrases it is, the cup of blessing that we bless, it's a participation in the blood of Christ, isn't it? Assumed answer, yes. Likewise, the bread that we break, it's a participation, a koinonia in the body of Christ. Isn't it? Yes, it is. can only say that because now Leviticus 17.11 has been fulfilled in Jesus. All right, pause there for questions. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I find that interesting, this part in John, because at our former church, I can't think of the name of the hymn or song right now, but... We were not allowed to sing that song, eat his body, drink his blood, oh, and I raise him up. Eat his flesh, drink. No, um, and raise him up on the last day and so forth. Yeah. We weren't allowed to sing that because the people were complaining about cannibalism. Oh, okay, yes. So the, um, Leslie says they couldn't sing the song. They should have taken it up with Jesus is what they should have done. But uh, concerned about cannibalism. This question gets asked. Confirmation kids always ask us when we, we talk about this. They say, uh, Pastor, why is this not cannibalism? And this was a, 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 a charge that was made also at the time of the Reformation. People would call it, rather than cannibalism, they would call it a Capernaitic way of uh, understanding the Lord's Supper because Jesus taught this at Capernaum, and so that became like a Capernaitic way. Okay, that's more than you need to know. But here's, at, I, I still don't want to gross you out. I know this is, this is weird a little bit, but a lot of our faith is weird, so deal with it. Um, <laughs> But here's the most simple way of understanding that. What is cannibalism? What's cannibalism? Not a trick question. Eating dead flesh. Eating dead flesh. How is that different from Jesus? Jesus is not dead. Jesus is not dead. And that makes all the difference. How are we able to partake partake and participate in the, the resurrected living blood and flesh of Jesus? We can't fully understand how that is. But we do believe that we receive his resurrected body and blood in, with, and under the bread and wine. And in our mouths, as well as in our hearts. It's not a merely memorial sort of thing. Of course, it is that, but it's much more than that as well. Yeah, Matt? Well, it occurs to me that we kind of set things like, you know, cannibalism is ultimately wrong. Where do we get that from? Partly from God's word. Right. But again, he sets the rules. Yeah, that's right. 
So maybe in some context, okay. it is wrong. That's fair. Okay. Maybe it is cannibalism, but if God says it's this is what yeah. you do. I see. This is why I love having Matt in Bible study. He always presses it just a little bit further, so that yeah, why is cannibalism wrong? Ultimately, because God says so. And if He says, if He were to say, no, it's okay, then you, we'd still reckon with that. Yeah, Becky. Okay, swing the other way, mm. away from cannibalism. Is there something in the language in the original that makes this? So we know it's not just symbols. Like this is not a bottle cap in the dust saying, okay, you go long. This is the core. Oh, good. Saying. Yeah, that's good. Um, is there something in the original language sure. that would indicate this is not just right. a symbol yeah. of his blood? Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I love that. Okay. You can go out the bottle caps in the sand. So is there anything in the original language that tells us this isn't just a symbol? Well, um, I would and say. The reason you're asking questions is because the people who believe it's just a symbol. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, right. Exactly. So that's because for people who aren't. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So there's a debate within the Christian church whether this is <laughs> exactly. really the, the book of blood or just a merely merely symbolic. Right. right. Exactly. It's a it's an ongoing discussion within within Christendom and um, whether or not you know how how realistically to understand this. I would say that it you don't even have to go appeal to the original language per se. Just look at the reaction, the response. So just think about this for a second. If Jesus meant it merely as symbolically here in John 6, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and then he sees the disciples walking away, this would be a natural time for him to say, guys, no, 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 you got, you misunderstood. You thought I meant that literally. No, 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 no. that would be gross, okay? No, I just meant it as a memorial meal, as a symbolic sort of thing. Come back, come back, come back. I'm drawing lines in the, in the sand like I'll do later, right? Um, to me, I think that speaks most powerfully of the fact that what Jesus says here, he means it. Otherwise, he's calling those guys back and saying, no, 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 I merely mean as a symbol. He doesn't. He means it seriously. Um, so, yeah, Chip and then Bob. Isn't the Passover a memorial meal? You're not actually being, you know, delivered from Egypt again. You're remembering, you're going through a process to remember, you're not actually eating of a cab. So it would make sense, he's doing it at the same time. Right. You could think, well, this is a memorial, but obviously, as you said, like, people are like pretty offended by this because yes. it seems pretty gross. Yeah, and again, it's, it's not less than a memorial meal, but it's more than it. So there is that remembrance side to it. And it's also the case that for the, in the Jewish uh, worldview, remembrance was a much fuller concept. Right. You know, when we think of it's just like, oh, that calls something to mind. But from a Jewish perspective, to remember is to participate in the past. Mm-hmm. And, and we see this, I can't think of the exact reference, but and within the, the Pentateuch in the first five books, they'll, they'll say to subsequent generations, not with our fathers did this happen, but to you who are here today, um, who uh, objectively, they were not there. But it's saying now you, you are participating in that reality. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, it's fundamental for us, the realness, the concreteness of our Lord Jesus among us. So when Paul said we koinonia, we participate with the body of Christ, we participate or we're bound to the blood. He's not saying we're bound to a symbol of his blood. We're actually bound to his corporal person, resurrected as it is. 
That's huge because it separates us from Gnostics and others who, who could not fathom God becoming flesh. It just right. can't be. How would he dwell among right. and take on a, a sinful, broken condition? Right. Can't be done. He's got to float up there somewhere and yeah. kind of address us with, with plastic gloves on. So yeah. um, this is real. We participate in the real flesh and blood of Jesus some miraculous way we don't understand, but it's the real deal. It's the real deal. And so, okay, so a couple other questions since we're, we're going on that what might flow from this is, well then, so how does that differentiate us from Roman Catholics, for instance? Um, and to a certain extent, it doesn't. This is kind of an interesting thing for us to recognize. In the Augsburg Confession, which was the first big Lutheran confession of faith, uh, which was composed in 1530, I think. So just your timeline, 1517, Luther pounded the nails on the Wittenberg door. 1530 is, they want to make this, the, the came to be called the Lutherans, want to make this confession of faith and send it to the Roman Catholic brothers and sisters to say, here's what we believe. And it was an opportunity for them, the Catholics, to come back. This was before they had the internet. They couldn't just, you know, put comments in the, in the post or whatever. They would send it out, right? And then the, the uh, other folks would respond. Okay, so Article 10, I believe it is, in the Augsburg Confession, our belief about the Lord's Supper. It's very straightforward. We believe in the true presence of Jesus in with and under the bread and wine. Okay, so that when the Catholics, when they respond back, do they dispute it? I mean, they argue about practically everything from justification to original sin to all these different things. The Catholic response to that article of the Lutherans, they say, yeah, it looks good. We're in agreement on that one. What was different then? What was the, the distinguishing thing? Well, actually, it connects with that Hebrews passage. What was dis distinguished is the Lutherans would say, and we still say, when we receive the Lord's Supper, we believe that Jesus is truly there. Um, well, but two things. One, we don't try to explain how he's there. And this is where the Roman Catholics um, would go a step further with, if you've ever heard this $5 word of transubstantiation, okay? You can impress your friends with that at a cocktail party. I'm talking about transubstantiation the other day. And uh, yeah. uh, <clears throat> Anyway, so transubstantiation is a philosophical uh, theory to try and make sense of how Jesus is present in, with, and under, using the categories that Aristotle gave, really. And as Lutherans, we would say we're content to follow in the footsteps of John the Baptist. And what is John the Baptist's strategy? Look, there he is. There he is, the very Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How is that possible? How is that guy? It's not, I don't know. It's not my job to explain how, just to believe that. See that difference? Um, and so that's one way that the Roman Catholic view has, has differed, is trying to explain more than what Scripture gives us. The second thing, and this is really the bigger thing, is that there's this belief in the sacrifice of the Mass, that when you celebrate the Eucharist, you are, in a sense, re-sacrificing Jesus and making it an action about us offering something up to God rather than what it is, which is the delivery of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus um, to us. It's about God's coming down to us rather than us trying to rise up to, up to him. That is a big, big difference. So, okay, other... Question. I'm happy to spend time with this because it's, it's important. Go ahead, Becky. Does the we just can't explain it and maybe shouldn't try also take care of the timing of he offers this to his disciples, take eat, this is my body, and he's not been sacrificed yet. His blood hadn't been spilled yeah. and he offers this cup. Right. How, 
timeline that doesn't work. Timeline that doesn't work. Yeah, that's a good question. I think so. And really, we're, I think we should see, and liturgically, the church recognizes this, that it's what we call the triduum, or the three holy days, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, that it all comes together. It's of a piece, because Monday, Thursday, and the institution of the Lord's Supper interprets then Good Friday, okay? I mean, it's not necessarily obvious that you would look at a guy hanging on a cross, which was, you know, typical for criminals at that time, and say, oh yeah, that's the Lamb of God sacrificed for the sins of the world. That wouldn't be an obvious thing, but Jesus interprets it for us through what he does Monday, Thursday. So I do think the time kind of folds in on itself, and it all should be taken of, of a piece. Yeah, Bob. It's important to note that Jewish day started at sundown. Yeah. So the Passover and the crucifixion happened on the same day. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this the Lord's Supper and his, his death. It's all one day. Yep. It's all, it all, it's all one day. All right, good. Other, any other questions or reflections? Whew, all right. <laughs> Digging deep. That's great. Yeah, go ahead, Margaret. Okay, when you say one day, now you're talking about Thursday at dark? Thursday, yes, exactly. So I'm sundown sure. Thursday, and then Friday, obviously Good Friday. Three o'clock in the afternoon. Right, as when, as when he perishes. That's right. That's one day. Yep. Uh, when I was in grad school, I had a Korean friend who was actually a professor at Baptist Seminary in Korea. And he said, I really like the way you talk about Jesus, but I just don't get you Lutherans with this real present. He didn't use that word. And can we talk about it? And I said, no. <laughs> I said, no, can we talk about Jesus? Can we just start where we're in common? As we talk together... He had the exact same knowledge and faith and trust and comprehension of our Lord Jesus. And finally, he came to a place where he says, I think I have the disconnect. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's so important. We start with Jesus. And when we're talking with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we start with Jesus. We don't start with, look, here's the thing. Here's the problem with you Baptists, right? Um, but instead, let's start with Jesus, who Jesus is, and how he how he gives himself to us, how he wants to reveal himself to us, and recognizing those gifts, that he is a, an incarnate God, and he wants to continue to be received and, and recognized in, in that way. Matt, did you have a, another thought? Okay. Um, good. All right. Any other things on that, or should we go to Leviticus 18? Yeah, Hans, go ahead. Can you tell me the difference, then, between consubstantiation oh, and okay. consubstantiation? Okay. All right, so, yeah, so just real quick. So then, when people are using that, category. Yes, what's the difference then between consubstantiation and transubstantiation? So this is kind of a reverse engineering of people saying, okay, so the Catholic position is transubstantiation, so then what's the Lutheran position? We're like, we're not playing that game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you were, what would we call it? <laughs> and that's where this word consubstantiation um, gets uh, invented, where transubstantiation means that the substance trans, transforms, changes. Consubstantiation is con, like with, okay? So that it's, the substance is with the bread and wine, and we're like, sure, if that helps you sleep at night, fine. Um, but nowhere, to my knowledge, do Lutherans ever actually own that in any of our kind of actual writings or um, official doctrinal teachings. That's kind of an Anglican phrase. Yeah, more of an Anglican so. so we believe it is, it is bread and wine and, and body and blood right. at the same time. Right. 
uh, and Catholics believe that uh, once it's consecrated at the altar or sacrificed again, that it becomes only the blood and body and, and is no more. It loses. It loses that. It, and, and that's yeah. why, like, if you ever win a mass, when they don't let crumbs just go anywhere. I mean, there's a kind of like little Jesus dust buster up there. I mean, there's a little... I mean, I, I see it's like, not a dirt devil, is it? It's no, a dirt, dirt angel. Dirt devil, you know, but and they have a little tabernacle, right? Where Correct. It in. I yeah. mean, it's a big deal because you are not just... It's, it's not just a, a wicker fell on the ground, so we're going to keep right. that. Like, well, that's, that's going up, you know? Right. And so there is that um, still continued reverence for the elements themselves. And this is where Luther would say, he'd push back on that and say, now you're tiptoeing into idolatry. When if the, Jesus said, and this is a, a, pretty much a quote from Luther, Jesus said, take and eat, not take and per- process through the streets. Um, because that was what was happening. And this is still today. If you ever hear of a Corpus Christi parade, that it's taking the host and parading through the streets so that people could, can reverence the, the host. Yeah, Bob. Um, we used to, uh, overseas in the Philippines, remembering it's animistic, um, and these love the Lord, but they still have some yeah. animistic phenomena. We did practice putting a host on the tongue of each believer because yes. they tended to put the host in their pocket to protect them from evil spiritual power. Well, and I, this is so interesting because that's the origin. You're familiar with that practice. Um, it's not real common here in our parish, but of receiving the host directly onto the, onto the tongue. And typically people think of that as like, oh, that's like a, just a very, for lack of a better term, high church kind of practice. You know, no hands. Yeah, get it right, right on the tongue. But it, the origins of it were in the Middle Ages where coming out of a culture that was still more, uh, uh, if you will, kind of superstitious in that way, people were, were pocketing the host, taking it home, and nailing it up over their doors as to try and ward off evil spirits and, and so forth. Just like Bob's describing. It's so fascinating. <laughs> and so that's where that practice kind of originated, right? Now, I, we have a little bit more confidence in you, and we keep an eye on you when I give you the host to make sure... <laughs> All right. Oh, wait a second there. Come on back now. Um, but, yeah, there you have it. Well, now, at our church, when, when you pour off the wine that's not being used, yes. it's a special drink, right? Correct. So, I mean, we still I have that. A little bit of half. We're kind of like a little bit still Catholic. <laughs> we are. <laughs> yes, we are not diet Catholic, as it's sometimes been said. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, I like the phrase evangelical Catholic. Um, where it's, it's that, that Catholic in the sense of the universal, okay, but evangelical, a focus on the gospel. But we still have that reverence and high regard for the elements, right? We recognize, yeah, take and eat, take and drink, but that doesn't mean we just treat it willy-nilly, okay? So as the elements have been consecrated, which is to say set apart for a special use, that's why the wine that has been consecrated in the celebration of the supper, afterward, we don't mix it with the wine that is, um, uh, is unconsecrated. So whatever has not been drunk is then poured out onto, into the uh, ground, into the earth, right? And then likewise, the hosts that are not eaten are set aside in a special, um, as the consecrated, separated from the unconsecrated to be used for future communions. So, yeah. So do you have to be a healthy, conscious, eating uh, person to receive communion? Okay, good. So Sandy's question. As a nurse, I'm just As a nurse, she's asking, do you have to be a healthy, conscious you know, eating person to receive the Lord's Supper. This is more of a pastoral question, and there's differing views on this. Like, so if you have a person who has dementia, 
right? And who, you know, um, mentally has, has, does not have all their faculties. Is it still appropriate to give them the Lord's Supper? I, I mean, or, that, I mean, or if you have a condition that doesn't allow you to eat. Or if you have a condition that doesn't allow you to eat. Yeah, because, I mean, there have been um, many instances where I've visited folks and they're just not able to eat. Um, in which case, so then your question is, so how, do you how do you partake? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel it. I feel it, no. <laughs> I haven't heard of that. But I mean, I guess two things would be. One, recognizing that it's a gift of God and not, not strictly speaking, a, a command. It's, oh. it's grace, not law. So it's not as though somebody is failing to keep the law by not doing this, right? It's, they're not able to avail themselves fully. But the other thing that I'll do sometimes is uh, intinction, okay? So intinction is when um, you take the host and dip it into the wine, and then, you know, it's just it's very soft at that point. And so even just um, to receive that little, that little taste, where then, now even if you can't really swallow, you're still able to receive that. I've done a few, that a few times, too. So, yeah. Good, great questions. I love this, you guys. This is really, really good, good stuff. Okay, so we've got just a few few minutes. So let's start into Levit Leviticus 18, and maybe I'll just kind of give some introductory remarks. It's a, a uh, controversial chapter in some ways, although I don't think it needs to be as we get into it. And I think maybe with some of these things you'll see, this is, this is sort of timeless in, in many respects. <clears throat> um, oh, and it speaks to unlawful sexual relations. So to start with, uh, I put it this way, that Leviticus 18 is a sixth commandment chapter, all right? Where's my catechism students? What's the sixth commandment? <laughs> you shall not commit adultery. That's right. Um, what does this mean? Okay, it's from the small catechism. We should fear and love God so that we lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do, and husband and wife love and honor each other. Okay. Well, a couple things on this. First of all, um, again, as Lutherans, we number, and as Catholics, and going back to um, Jews as well, we number the commandments a little bit different than other Protestants. So if sometimes you'll hear this referred to as the seventh commandment, um, but uh, other, other Protestants still talking about the same commandment. The reason for that is they break out the first commandment into two commandments. You shall not have any graven images is separated as a second commandment um, rather than being subsumed into the first. Okay, you're like, this is confusing. Bottom line is you got to keep all of it, okay? <laughs> However you want to number it, right? As neither here nor there. Um, but uh, you shall not commit adultery. Now, we think of that as you know, in a very narrow kind of way as a, a husband or a wife cheating on their spouse. Okay. It certainly is that. But Luther, as he does throughout the small catechism, he, he gets to the heart of the matter and says it's not just that. And if you only look at that and you say, oh, I haven't cheated on my spouse and I'm good, then you've missed the, the bigger picture of it, which is that we should fear and love God so that we lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do. All right? With that statement now, it becomes clear this refers to whether or not you're married. All right? Widowed, divorced, whichever. Um, and, and husband and wife love and honor each other. So, of course, it has a particular application to husbands and wives, but this is a word for all of God's people, okay? For all of God's people. And certainly, Jesus, as he, when he um, interprets the sixth commandment in the Sermon on the Mount, brings it in this direction. It's what Luther is reflecting upon. And Jesus says, look, if you've looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you've broken the sixth commandment, right? Of don't commit adultery. So when we look at chapter 18, so a way to kind of understand it or think about it, this is a, an, uh, a sixth commandment kind of, of teaching. 
So let me just read the first five verses, and then we'll get into the real nitty-gritty of the, the rest of the chapter. Because this first um, passage really sets the table for the, the rest of it, and indeed for subsequent chapters as well. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Okay, so here we have, there's nothing there yet about sexual relations. To frame and to understand these commandments of the Lord, in a larger sense, it's about be not conformed to this world. Be not conformed to this world. Don't follow the ways of Egypt from which you came, nor the ways of Canaan to which you're going. You are going to be surrounded by people who believe differently, who live differently than you do. Don't just go with the crowd. Don't just go along to get along. Instead, you are going to be a people set apart. Not because you want to be contrarian, not because you're just trying to be difficult, but because I have set you apart. I am the Lord your God who has called and claimed you, redeemed you. You're different, right? You're different. And I love the way that, that Peter puts this in, in 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, he has um, a, a remarkable phrase that I think really encapsulates what we're learning in Leviticus as well. So go all the way to the New Testament toward the back to Peter's first letter. Peter 4, verses 1 through 5. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. Basically college. With respect, to this, <laughs> with respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. All right. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. Peter's not missing words here. But he's saying, look, the way, the, if you just go with the flow, you're just going to be caught up in that flood of debauchery, or dissipation, as it's sometimes said. And um, here I'll often invoke uh, a quote from G.K. Chesterton. Let's see if I've got it. Uh, I don't have it on, on there. But Chesterton says, a dead thing goes with the stream. Only a living thing can go against it. A dead thing goes with the stream. Only a living thing can go against it. And that's what Peter's talking about. You are living things. You're not just going with the flow. But instead, now you are called out of the world. That word ecclesia, which we uh, translate as church, literally means called out. You've been called out of the world to live differently. To live according to God's will and God's ways. Again, Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, 
what is good and acceptable and perfect. With just the last few minutes here, my question for you is, how do you resist a flood? <laughs> if we live in a world which is, in Peter's words, a, a flood of debauchery, not exclusively, but in many ways, and we're called to be living things that don't just go with the flow, but go against it, how are we able to resist that flood? How can we stand firm and, and go contrary to that flow? Yes, Cindy? You have to go to higher ground. Oh, good. You have to go to higher ground. I like speaking poetically, but yeah, go, go to higher ground. Good. Hide behind the rock. Now we're preaching. <laughs> Come on now. That's right. Hide behind the rock. And the rock was Christ, Paul says. Good. What else? Yeah, Bob. I think it's really important we always distinguish our walk with God from our culture, whether that culture reflected the mores of Christianity or that it doesn't now. What, exactly. Whether it was, you know, we want to wring our hands and say, oh, we used to have a, a Christian society and, and now it's, it's not. Listen. I don't care if you were in 1950s, you know, white bread America, or if you're in the 21st century, no culture has perfectly reflected the, the will or ways of God. And so, you know, dry your tears about you're sorry that things aren't the way they used to be. And let's get down to living, you know, for such a time as this, God has called us to, to be faithful. And that's, that's what it comes down to. But sorry, go on. I interrupted you. One of you. the difficult things for me to accept is, we lived so long under the reign of Christendom, which was wonderful in many ways, that we're really struggling with, and we're looking at this present age as profoundly abnormal. It's normal. It's normal, exactly. We're, we're, we're normal spiritually, but we are abnormal in terms of the world. And we are actually living in a world that is like the world now. Yeah. And, and just to become sober-minded about it and make clear choices, I'm not going to live that way. Yeah. In many ways, we're more like our New Testament brethren in a world that's more akin to what they grew up in. I saw a hand over here. Was, did you have a... Oh, no. Okay. Pass. Well, go ahead, Esther. Well, back to the question, how yeah. do you resist the flood? The scripture helps us out. Call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. Call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. You yep. pray and call out to God. Yep. We can't do this by ourselves. And, uh, when the enemy comes in. Yeah. The enemy comes in like a flood. Yeah. Raise, raise, raise that hand. and um, If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel now say, if the Lord had not been our side, then the waters would have washed over us. Uh, Psalm 124. Uh, and so many of the Psalms. The, the waters are rising up to my neck. Save me, O God. Psalm 69. We call out to him. And he pulls us out, Psalm 18, that's right. To Just like, yeah, to a broad place. And like I said in, in the sermon, that's that one-way love of God. He reaches down when we are helpless. And we're not even fighting against the current, right? We're, <laughs> we're just floating along, but he, he reaches down. Any other thoughts? How do you resist the flood? Yeah, Lily. Walk on water. Walk on water. <laughs> that, or be with one who does. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, an ancient vision of the church is that the church is, an, is the ark, is an ark, right? Um, and in fact, we, what we call the sanctuary, strictly speaking, the part where the congregation sits is called the nave. It's the same root word as navy because it's like a boat. In fact, sometimes you'll be in a church where it's almost structured like an upside-down boat, which maybe that's not a best in, good image. <laughs> <laughs> Capsized ark. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, um, but get in the boat. 
All right? Don't just think also that you can resist the flood by yourself. Okay? Be in the, in the company and the fellowship of your brothers and sisters to help stand fast, right? Cling to one another as well. Yeah, other... Hans, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was just thinking of uh, Peter in, in the boat. Yeah. It's like, how do you resist the waves? Or How did he do that? Look to Jesus. He looked at Jesus. That's right. The author and perfecter of our faith. That's right. Sandy, did you have more thoughts? Um, just that uh, the flood of evil that is going on around us, Paul never addresses them. That's right. He, he says to the church. Yeah. yeah, that's a great point. What Sandy was saying is, you know, Paul doesn't uh, waste words, um, uh, you know, criticizing or critiquing the world out there. Right. In fact, he'll say just the opposite. He's like, in so many words, what do you expect? Right. Okay. But instead, the call is for us as Christians, as the church, to repent. Okay. Yeah, the world is going to go its way. We're not just going to say, yeah, let them go to, to hell in a handbasket. We're there to call to repentance and to point to the rock, to point to the higher ground. Um, but I, that's such a good point that we're, we're not here to wring our hands about the way that the world is, but instead to fold our hands in prayer, to stretch our hands out with one another as, as the body of Christ, to open our hands to receive his body and blood, which is life, and thereby be strengthened to resist that flood. So, good. Thank you guys. It's a great study and conversation, and we'll continue with Leviticus 18 next week.